Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Hi, this is Larson Hicks with Trinity Reformed Church. Before our regularly broadcasted program, I want to tell you about a conference we're putting on here in Huntsville this January. The conference is called Stronghold, and our theme for this first year is Biblical Masculinity. We're thrilled to have a great lineup of speakers. Pastor Vody Bauckham, Pastor Michael Foster from the It's Good to Be a Man podcast, Pastor George Grant, Dr. Ben Merkel, President of New St. Andrews College, and Pastor Rich Lusk. Tickets are on sale now at strongholdconference.com. Supplies are limited, so be sure to get one quick before we're all sold out. Thanks. Hope to see you there. Sermon by Jason Cherry on December 27th, Lord's Day Service. The words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 8 through 13. We begin reading here in verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there is infinitely more reason to believe what you tell us in your word than to disbelieve it. We trust you more than we trust our bias. We trust you more than we trust our feelings. May your spirit stir in us a commitment to your word this morning. We pray this for the sake of your name. Amen. Amen. So for the next few minutes, you're going to listen to a sermon that is preached from a text of scripture in the Bible. This book here, the Bible. What is the Bible? Well, according to the Gideons, the Bible contains the mind of God the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map. It is the pilgrim's staff. It is the pilot's compass. It is the soldier's sword, and it is the Christian's charter. In the Bible, 
heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Jesus Christ is its grand subject. Our joy is its design and the glory of God is its final end. For Christians, the Bible should fill the memory. It should fill your memory and it should rule your heart and guide your feet. People everywhere should read it. They should read it slowly. They should read it frequently and they should read it prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth. It is a paradise of glory and it is the ground for all meaning. It's given to you in life, but it will be open to you in judgment and it will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility. It rewards the greatest labor and it will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. And yet, the church today has trifled. We, not the church out there, we even here, we have trifled with its sacred contents. Oh, how the church today has put the Bible in the yielding lane, letting seemingly everything else go ahead of it. Look at our children. Our children know and love the stories of Disney more than they know and love the stories of the Bible. Look at the adults. Our adults assume the principles of progressive morality more than they assume the principles of God's morality. For every one hour we spend with a screen, we spend one second with the Bible. And so here we are saying it's God's word. We're saying it's God's word. And then those words just float off into the ether as if they're meaningless because we say it's God's words and pay no attention to it. Which suggests something about what we're saying. It suggests we don't believe it. Who would say this is God's word and then put it on the permanent shelf? If you thought it was God's word, it would not be on the permanent shelf. It would be in your heart. It would be in your hands. And so we say it's God's words and then we have remarkably little curiosity about what it says. But, oh, there's a new video on YouTube. Have you seen it? Is that not the content of our conversation? Why does that video matter? It will not be held up to us on the day of judgment, but the words of God in this book will. How is it that we go on with such little curiosity about what it actually says? And so I say again, we have trifled with its sacred contents. But we're not the only generation of God's people who've trifled with the Bible. In 640 BC, at the beginning of King Josiah's reign, while the ancient Near East witnessed a power struggle between Assyria, Babylon, and Israel, the people of God also trifled with its sacred contents. And really, it's not so much that they trifled, it's that they totally neglected it. And I suppose there is a difference. Today, churches give lip service to the Bible. They give lip service to the gospel but then they drink deeply from the wells of secular ideas. In Josiah's day, they also drank deeply from the wells of the world's ideas. They just didn't even bother with the lip service. So I don't know if we're better than them or they're better than us. You can decide over Sunday lunch. The story of Josiah begins with a startling summary statement. 
And the thing that makes it startling is that it's so different from everything else you see in the book of First and Second Kings. It's so different from most of the other kings described in First and Second Kings. And so look at this startling introductory statement in Second Kings chapter 22, verse 2. It says, describing King Josiah, the young king, it says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's what's startling about it. Throughout First and Second Kings, king after king is presented to us, and king after king, we are told, did what was displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. And here we get to Second Kings chapter 22, and we read that Josiah did what, what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And so his reign is different. And the thing that makes it different is that in verse 8, the high priest Hilkiah rediscovers the law of God. He rediscovers the word of God. And he gives it to King Josiah, and Josiah stewards it well. How does King Josiah steward the word of God well? Well, when the word is found, it is brought to him. And he has it read, and he reads it, and he hears the contents of it. And so he then gives a statement that really is a summary statement for all of First and Second Kings. So First and Second Kings is kind of complicated. Maybe you're intimidated by it. It's really a very simple book, though, and it's really summarized in this one verse. Look at it with me. Second Kings chapter 22, verse 13. This is the point of First and Second Kings, written to a people in exile, wondering why they're in exile. And here it says, verse 13, Josiah saying it, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And so in the broader context, First and Second Kings is written to a people in exile. They're in exile wondering, why are we in exile? Did God fail? And the answer is no. Verse 13 here says it's not that God failed, it's that we failed. It says, great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. And so the reason they were in exile was because they disobeyed the word of God. Really, they neglected it. It was hidden in the back room and they didn't even know where it was. And so we see here with the story of King Josiah that Josiah receives the book of the law, he receives the word of God once it's found, and he stewards it well. And in so doing, Josiah immediately shows us what a serious reformer he is. And we should be very interested in that word, because Christians are not revolutionaries, we're reformers. And all reformation begins with the restoration of the word of God, without exception. If you want to be a people of reformation, you want to reform your family culture, you want to reform your soul, you want to reform this church or this community, it always begins with the restoration of the authority of the Word of God. See, revolution is overthrowing something. We don't want to overthrow the Word of God. We want to restore it. That's why we as Christians are reformers. We're not revolutionaries. And so Josiah immediately shows us what a serious reformer he is. He gathers all the people, and in chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, he reads all of the words of the book of the covenant. And then he leads the people to respond to the word of God. 
by making a covenant before the Lord. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 3, And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And so he, he has the word of God read before the people. And the effect is seen immediately because then at the very end of verse 3 it says, and all the people joined in the covenant. And then after all the people joined in the covenant, Josiah, beginning in chapter 23, verse 4, running through verse 20, Josiah immediately sets about to systematically remove all practices that contradict God's word. Can you imagine if that was our church mission statement? It's not pithy. But it would honor the Lord. And then Josiah, beginning in verses 21 through 23, reinstitutes the Passover celebration according to the book of the covenant. Josiah removes everything that's contrary to the word of God so that, it then says in verse 24, so that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And then in verse 25, the author reinforces just how radical this reform is when he then says this about King Josiah, chapter 23, verse 25. Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. There was no king like him because he obeyed the Lord. Is this not a man we should learn from? Is this not a man that should be our model? Is this not a man we need to make applications from? But before we can make applications, we need to as clearly as possible state the enduring principle that's wrapped up in these verses, that's wrapped up in this part of 2 Kings. The endearing principle that we see in this text is that we must remove deceptive idols and restore the authority of the Word of God in the church. I'll say that again. We must remove deceptive idols and restore the authority of the Word of God in the church. That is the timeless principle that we see coming out of the text, and it's timeless, so we can then bring it over here and drop it right into our own context. And I want to be entirely clear that the point of this sermon, the only point, is to cast a vision that we would be a people who are set about to restore the authority of the Word of God. I want the Spirit to stir in your heart. This is what I've been praying all week for you. I want the Spirit to stir in your heart a desire to restore the authority of the Word of God in your life, in your family, and in this church. That is the point. That that vision would be cast in your soul, that the Spirit would stir that in your heart, that you would truly sit under the authority of the Word of God. And so that's the enduring principle of this text. And in application of this principle, we need to consider two things. First, we need to consider the misplaced authority in the church today. And then second, we need to consider the proper place for the Word of God in the church today. And so when we consider the misplaced authority in the church today, so much of it boils down to the simple fact that we think we know better. 
Why, why do children ignore their parents? Because they think they know better than their parents. Why do you ignore the media? Because you think you know better. Why do you ignore things? Because you think you know better. So then when you ignore the word of God, why are you doing that? It's because you think you know better. When Christians think they know better, they ignore the word of God. And that's the root cause for much of our neglect. Christians today have pushed the word of God aside. They treat the Bible as if it's an artifact. Christians today say, you know, I know the Bible's supposed to be important. I know it's supposed to be, but consider the advance of scientific knowledge. There's just so much of the natural world we can explain by science. And you know, in days gone past, they had to appeal to some supernatural God to explain things. But now we know like the scientific process, so we don't need God to explain that anymore. Christians today say, you know, I know the Bible's supposed to be important, but consider the rise of progressive morality. There just seems to be a certain twist on, you know, how we understand the world now that people 1,500 years ago didn't have. And so we, we really need to, we really need to give that a lot of attention. These new ideas of morality. Christians today say, you know, I know the Bible's supposed to be important, but you know, just, you know, that God in the Old Testament seems so mean. He's just so mean. Have you read Numbers 31? And the world keeps saying that God is, is racist and malevolent. And, you know, it just, it seems kind of like the, the Bible's kind of immoral. And so, you know, I, I know the Bible's supposed to be important, but it's really hard to submit to the Bible in light of all of our new knowledge. And so what is the result for Christians in the church? Well, you know the result. Just look around. Many Christians today are unsure, they're tentative, and they're confused as to what they're supposed to believe and what they're supposed to do. And so they stagger around from gimmick to gimmick. They stagger around from self-help book to self-help book from commentator to commentator, from podcaster to podcaster, from celebrity preacher to celebrity preacher, from church to church. They are, like J.I. Packer once said, they are like drunks in a fog, not knowing at all which way they're supposed to go or what they're supposed to do. And so in the church, what's the result? Well, preaching is hazy. Heads are muddled. Hearts fret with endless anxiety. Doubts push away assurance. Uncertainty paralyzes obedience. And why is this? Well, if you ask the questions who are to those Christians who are in the haze, they'll say, well, you know, just look at, look at the pressure of secularism. It's bearing down on the church. It's secularism's fault out there. And yet... We blame the external pressures of modern secularism, but like Eve blaming the serpent, we ourselves really agree with it. The reason Eve believed the serpent was because she came to agree with him. And so it's not necessarily the serpent's fault, is it? It's not necessarily secular culture's pressure on us as fault, is it? We have gone out into secular culture picked up their tools, and brought them back into the church. And then we've said, hey, everyone, look at our new tools. Let's start building something with them. 
And so when we ignore the Bible, we grieve the Spirit. And one thing that becomes clear in this Second Kings passage, especially chapter 22, verse 13, is that we stand under divine judgment when we fail to hear the word of the Lord. And when we fail to hear the word of the Lord, the church is enfeebled. The church is enfeebled. This is why the church is enfeebled today. You know it. We talk about it. Why is the church enfeebled? Well, it's because we've ignored the word of God. And so when the church is enfeebled, that means the preached word is undermined. It means that the taught word is undercut. It means that the faith of the saints is weakened. It means that the Bible is not widely read by church members. And Jesus Christ is redefined. And so we see here there's a misplaced authority in the church, largely because we think we know better. But we need to consider the proper place for the word of God in the church today. For example, we need to consider how the Bible is how God expresses his lordship. We talk about how Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord. What does that mean on the ground day to day? Well, the Bible is how God exercises his lordship. God's word is the expression of his authority, which means for us, the Bible is God's ultimate authority for faith and life. In other words, to submit to the Bible is to submit to the lordship of God. If Jesus is your Lord, then that means he has authority over you. Well, how do you know what he wants you to do? How do you know what he wants you to believe and how he wants you to live? The Bible. The Bible is written in a human language, and that language has meaning. And the meaning comes from the divine author. And so then what it means for the church to submit to God is for the church to read and interpret the Bible by trying to understand what the Holy Spirit intended when he inspired that particular author with that particular personality to write those particular words to those particular people at that particular point in time. And when you do this, that is when you read the scriptures trying to understand what the divine author intended, when you read the scriptures and you understand the power of the Holy Spirit, you then hear the word of God. And then through the stirring of the Spirit, you submit to the word of God. And so, God is exercising his lordship through the Bible. And in that way, then, we would have to say that the Bible, then, is the highest authority. The Bible is the highest authority. Since the Bible is God's expression of authority, that means the Bible is the highest authority. Now, when I was growing up, I heard this slogan bandied about, and you probably have heard it too. Here it is. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. Now, it's a great statement. Wonderful statement. Three cheers for that statement. But there is something wrong with that statement. There's something implied in that statement. It suggests, as R.C. Sproul pointed out years ago, it suggests that the matter of biblical authority depends upon a person believing it. The more accurate slogan, therefore, would be, God says it. That settles it. And if you don't believe it, it's still true. In the church, there is no higher authority. And so the Christian position is that once God opens his holy mouth in his word, 
the matter is settled. But what about the Enlightenment philosophers? The matter is settled. But what about Darwin? The matter is settled. And so we see the Bible is how God exercises his lordship. The Bible is the highest authority. And the outworkings of that is that the Bible joyfully constrains the Christian life. Listen to that again, because each word is chosen particularly. The Bible joyfully constrains the Christian life. You see, Christianity is a religion of written revelation. That is, there's a divine being, God, who has revealed himself to his creation. And so Christianity is a religion of written revelation, which is to say that part of our view of the world is that our worldview is constrained, which means our theology is constrained. What does that mean? It means we don't get to define theology as we see fit. We define theology as God has said it in his word. And so our theology is constrained. Our doctrine is constrained. Our preaching is constrained. Our living is constrained. Everything is constrained. Because as Martin Luther said at the Diet of Worms in 1521, we are captives to the word of God. Well, what did Luther mean when he said that? He meant that we are constrained by Scripture. I can't just invent what I like or what I prefer or what the world says we ought to like or ought to prefer. No, we are constrained by Scripture. And from this perspective then, worldview conflicts in the modern age divide on these lines. The constrained worldview and the unconstrained worldview. This is what Thomas Sowell argued in his 1987 book, Conflict of Visions. Very important book, which Amazon, I think, has pulled. He divides the modern world into two categories. You're either part of the constrained world, namely Christianity, or part of the unconstrained world, which defines human autonomy as the center of meaning. And the Christian vision for life and the Christian vision for joy, the Christian vision for truth and meaning and fulfillment, comes when we are constrained by what God has said. You see, the world tells you this lie that says, if you have unfettered living, and you can do what you want, and you are the center of your world, it's called human autonomy, then you will receive joy. And that's a lie, because we were made by a creator. And so there's a God over us, and there's an authority over us, which means we are at our maximum level of joy, when we submit to that authority, when we run from that authority, that is not a place of joy, that's a place of condemnation. And so the Christian vision for joy is that we are constrained by what God says. We were not created to be unconstrained. Or to take that out of the double negative, we were created to be constrained. And that's a joyful place to be. Children love having boundaries. The happiest kids are the kids that have the clearest boundaries. It's the kids without boundaries who are the unhappy children. Likewise, we as human beings were designed to have boundaries. And when we live in those boundaries, the constraints that God has given us, that's where joy is found. The only being in the universe who is unconstrained is God. The definition of God is unconstrained. The definition of man, the creature, constrained. 
When you think you can throw off the scriptures and live according to your preference, you're basically claiming to be God. And so let's close by returning to the text. 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 26 and 27. We read these words. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of His great wrath, by which His anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked Him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off the city that I have chosen, Jerusalem in the house of which I said, My name shall be there. And so the situation is this. Judah, strangely enough, finds itself with this righteous king named Josiah. The king long awaited. He's the best of all kings. He restores the authority of the word of God. He renews the covenant with all the people. And yet here in chapter 23, verse 26, the judgment is still announced. Why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One redemptive historical reason is just it's a matter of timing. At this juncture of history, Josiah's, I guess we could say he's too late. But also there's something else going on here that's not looking back, but that's looking forward. And what we see from this is that Josiah can come in and he can reform their practices. And he can have everyone congregate and he can read the book of the law to them. And then he can engage in a ceremony that renews the covenant. He can do all of that. He can tear down the idols and he can restore the Passover. He can do all of that and he can reform those external practices but Josiah cannot change the hearts of the people. What we see in this is the fact that not only are we a people of the book, but we are a people in need of a Savior. And that Savior is not Josiah, as great as he was. We need the power of a sufficient Savior. And so the response of Josiah's reformation was skin deep. When he died, his reforms died with him. What did his sons and his brothers do after him? Well, they returned their country to the pagan ways of the past. And what did the people do? Well, they accepted the idolatry of the past. And that's why we see Jeremiah chapter 31, where Jeremiah promises this new covenant and realize that Jeremiah is writing this during the day of Josiah, during this moment. And this is what Jeremiah promises in Jeremiah 31. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. In other words, Josiah comes in, and he externally conforms the people of Israel to the word of God, and they still, at the heart level, ran from it. And so God says, All right. We're going to do something different. We have this new covenant. And God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And so instead of merely having external conformity to the word of God, there's going to be this inside out conformity that's God wrought. That the spirit of God initiates in the hearts of man. It goes on to say in Jeremiah 31, I will be their God. They shall be my people. You see, Josiah couldn't accomplish that because he couldn't change their heart. He was a faithful man. He externally conformed the people to the ways of God. But he couldn't change their heart. So he could enforce a change in practice, but he could not enforce a change in their heart. Hence, the new covenant of Jesus Christ. 
The change of heart only comes with Josiah's great descendant, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. The one who can change hearts. You see, Jesus doesn't merely externally conform the practices. Jesus changes hearts inside out. Jesus, who is the means by which God forgave iniquity and creates new hearts where old ones were. Jesus, the one who can create a desire and a longing to obey. Josiah couldn't do that. Jesus, who can create a willingness to die to self. Josiah couldn't do that. Jesus, who can create contentment in all circumstances. Josiah couldn't do that. You see, the new covenant promises a new heart from the Spirit of God. And with that new heart comes a new faith. And that faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. That faith is in the merits of Christ's atoning blood, where Christ pays the penalty, declares you right with God, and forgives you of your sins. With that, let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we desire that the year 2021 that we look ahead to would be a year where we, as a church, restore the authority of your word. We desire to be a people of the book and a people of prayer. Father, we pray that you would make it so not only in our outer practices, but also in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Thank you.